Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Episode 13, a conversation with artist Katie Holton, who is based in New York City and Ireland. Hi, Katie. Very nice to have you. Hi, Daniela. Great to talk to you. I want to go really back a couple of years. We two met each other at the residency at the Irish Museum of Modern Art in 2002. And um, I remember that very vividly because uh, you had a show there at Temple Bar and there were already certain things popping up in that show which you developed further. In 2003, you uh, were the representative for um, Ireland at the Venice Biennale. And almost in all of these shows, there were certain things. So either there was a participation of other artists, scientists, or writers, or there were a lot of drawings, mostly with plants and trees. And uh, so the sense of collaboration, but also the meaning of drawing seems to be something very important. And I would like to first focus on the meaning of drawing because this is something which is your continuous practice what does it mean if you draw something why is it so important yeah it's lovely to think back to 2002 before 2020 <laughs> before yeah. what we're living through now drawing is for me it's the, the heart um of of everything that i do and i and i see everything as being drawing like i go for a, a walk i sort of exist outside um and i've because I'm in, I'm quarantined in California, and that's why I'm, I'm so lucky and privileged that we've got a garden and we can be outside. So during lockdown, I was outside, and I realised this is. And I talked to my mum, who's you know in rural Ireland. I need to be outside. If we were in our apartment in New York, I really don't know how I would have coped. Mm. Um, and I think that about this a lot. You know, my friends, everybody I know who's who's stuck inside in little apartments. But so for, to go back to this idea of drawing, it's it's really existing in space and how we, or well, me, to bring it back to myself, how I try and understand my relationship with the world has always existed. Like I, my earliest memories are being outside in Ireland, you know, with moss and mud and stones and trees and making marks. You know, you, you pick up mud or you, you draw something, you mark something, you pick up a stone and it's got marks on it. Where do they come from? What do they mean? And these are drawings that are sort of embedded or they grew into something or you plant them in, out in the world. And it's a way of communicating with ourselves personally, um, whether it's me talking to myself on my walks or as you said working a lot with other people I've always reached out to um, being very greedy I, I always describe it or feel like I'm being greedy wanting to to reach out to, to people who are doing interesting things that's just always how I've been so when email first started when I was back in college in 1994 I got my email address so I used to before that I used to write letters to people and then I, I discovered email this is more um, instantaneous and it was a very exciting time because you could contact anybody in the world once you've had their email address and I always found that people responded because you know I was obviously interested in what they were, they were doing that's why I was reaching out now I think things have changed and it's become more like spam and we're in a different time but the, yeah the, this whole notion of drawing even the word like drawing things together so you draw conclusions you draw something out you you tease things um so I've just 
always been kind of loved the medium and also I, I guess the simple fact that a drawing I mean we see this in art exhibitions and galleries museums um, even the Met when they reopened it was with that big unfinished exhibition so works that technically we would describe as being unfinished and drawings always have this the sense of being more authentic maybe because they are marks that were made maybe not um, with the intention of being a you know a finished artwork mm -hmm. it's more reaching to the the heart of your hand and your eye and your your mind making notes and and researching through and that's how I feel like my whole practice is so that's sometimes why I say that everything is a drawing because it's all trying to to find paths through and communicate in different levels as long as I know you you've always been a nomad you work everywhere you have residencies all over the world and so drawing seems to be also something you can do anywhere because you you basically just need a paper and a pencil or Indian ink mm -hmm. yeah well, and I think that was why I was included in a few early um, exhibitions because my my fees my my work load was very simple I just needed um, well a lot of it because I was doing a lot of temporary wall drawings so I was in an exhibition group exhibition at the uh, Douglas Hyde gallery mm -hmm. I just turned up every day with my my pencil and I I drew for the whole four days or the week of the install and I made the work on site on the, the concrete walls of the Douglas Hyde so that's you know, it's always been very practical because I, you know, I grew up with no money and going to art college. I never understood, you know, I'm not a painter, so, so I, I don't have that urge to buy canvas, but I couldn't understand how, how could students afford to buy canvas and paints and brushes? And then you have all these canvases, where do you put them? You have to store them somewhere. So it, it was just very foreign to me. It wasn't my world. It wasn't practical. Because as you said, I was always moving. Um, I didn't have my first apartment until I went to New York on the Fulbright. So it was always just very low budget, low key. Because again, you know, it all goes back to drawing. Because I was just drawing my way through and um, trying to understand and and research. I think at the heart of it is it's all just about trying to understand who I am and, and what am I. And we're all connected you know on this this planet so it's just this research project to see um and the research project i guess being my life i now see this decades later yes um yeah what what is our purpose because you know i think going back to you know not to harp on about it but this growing up in the countryside where the cycle of of life in a way was all very very visible so you, my mum was a gardener it still is so you you plant and you'd see that cycle with the four seasons you we went to the creamery and got milk the meat came from the local butchers the cows were out in the field so it was very simple in a way now there's this disconnect and that was actually the reason I wanted to go to New York was to to look at this relationship with nature you know the capital N for, for what is nature because we're we're humans we're part of it too and I never understood this disconnect why we were separated from it and why everything became so separated and I think that's um, really what I've been trying to understand all these and, years. And is this also to feel that connection is this the reason why you started to draw trees and plants because the early earliest drawings I know by you are already of trees. Yeah I think the work back in 2002 the um, exhibition at Temple Bar Gallery and Studios was originally when I talked to Vary Claffey the curator was going to be a wall drawing so the entire space would be full of this wall drawing but you wouldn't realize that necessarily that the gallery was full until you came in because you know pencil drawings can look kind of invisible until you're up close but then as I um, was working preparing for the show I started crocheting with my friend Helen O'Leary brought me over to the States and I got addicted to um, to crocheting and I realized 
was this moment, like an epiphany moment on the subway in New York, that I could, that the drawings, the, the crochet was actually an extension of the, the drawings on paper. And so I realised and I told Vary, I said, I think it doesn't need to be a pencil drawing on the wall. It's actually going to be this object, this this crochet pieces. And each crochet piece was a, a different um, moment of the journey to the gallery, essentially. So I realised afterwards it was kind of like my carbon footprint um, as each piece was made as I travelled to the gallery. and. Those pieces were all, I called it 137.5 degrees. I realized like the growth patterns in plants, you have the main stem and then the, the leaves, the, steep, the, the smaller twigs all branch off more or less at 137.5 degrees in, in plants. And this mathematical uh, system that underlines how things grow essentially um, is universal. And it goes all the way down, you know, our, our brains and our lungs all have these same the replicating patterns. And I, I just realized as I was crocheting, oh, um, so realizing that I could, with the, the these crochet works, I could create a, an actual object. Um, so, you know, before this, all of the drawings were very temporary and ephemeral um, and didn't exist maybe after the exhibition if the walls were painted over. So with the crochet, you had these objects that could be packed up and shown again. And But the, the mathematical um, underlines of the, the 137.5 degrees really goes back to all of the earliest works that I was doing and a lot of the drawings and the notebooks was research that went back to the earliest days of me learning how to do my um, math with my my father was a you know a mathematician and worked with numbers love numbers and I remember him sitting with the pencil and paper and just really having this joy of just making marks with numbers and that language really meant something to my dad and it's like he could see something in the numbers that I couldn't really understand but I it's always been because again it's a man-made system right mathematics is um it's not real it doesn't exist we created it like language and so it's um something that I've sort of been obsessed with I wanted to be a physicist when I was little I didn't have the bandwidth but I've always been really interested in how we understand the world and how how does it work and how do we figure it out so whether it's using numbers or using language so I realized with this 137.5 degrees it was a very simple system where the the lines were kept moving off at these same distances and I think now I'm trying to remember the question oh that doesn't matter at all the first exhibition I saw it was at Temple Bar and it was 137.5 degrees. It happened on the C train, actually, was like the subtitle. I remember the story when you said you, you also crocheted when you were on the subway in New York. But my original question, actually, yes, it referred back to the trees and the plants in your drawing uh, oeuvre. Yeah. So I think the, the 137.5 degrees work was abstract in the sense that it was looking more at the, the numbers and this underlying mathematics that I had been working on in my the drawings on paper. So then I made this sculptural wall drawing with the crochet. And then going to New York, you know, as I said, it was at Fulbright specifically to look at our relationship with the nature. And which meant that I got there and I just, I spent first couple of weeks just walking because that's what I do anyway. And that's what New York City is. It's a walking city. And realized um, that I kept being drawn to the green areas. I was in the East Village near Alphabet City. And, you know, they call it a concrete jungle. There's a reason they call it the concrete jungle. So after a couple of months, I really did find that the inside of my my body, this physical reaction to, to searching for green. And you mentioned, you know, that I travel a lot. I guess I've always traveled and I've always found myself back at home in between the travels. So there's always been time where I can just be in Ireland and be immersed in the green. You know, it's it's 
dampness and the mossness. And I spent a lot of time in my mum's garden working there. And so being in the East Village in New York City, I, I really found on a very human physical way that my body and my heart was trying to find something to to latch onto in a way and then I realized um oh street trees this is how the majority of New Yorkers have a connection with nature mm-hmm. because again you know we see nature as being something separate to us even though all of New York City is nature all of the built environment everything because we're nature but so the street trees became these very very simple symbols of this other world that we're a part of they're connected to the soil and they're growing they're alive so I started mapping the walks that I was doing through the street trees and I, I also I lived on first street so I felt myself every time I left my apartment that I was starting at, at one and any walk that I went on was basically it's kind of like zeros and ones you know when you're computer programming I always felt like well I'm at one and I can go anywhere in this city and I'll end up back here but the route in between uh, is so exciting and unknown. And I mapped them through these these drawings that I made of the street trees. And that was back in 2004, 2005. And it wasn't until like 10 years later that I realized, and I, I was actually making these the tree drawings on very small pieces of paper. I started off just doing it on like eight and a half by 11. That's what we say in the States over in Europe, it's more A4. And I realized like 10 years later, oh, they were actually like love letters. The trees themselves were the, the letters or characters. And that's when the, the tree alphabet kind of clicked into place. And I realized mm-hmm. all along that the trees themselves were speaking or we could speak through them. Were you already aware at that time that, as we know now, that trees have this ultimate connections in the forest? They're not like single beings. Their roots connect with each other and they actually actually talk to each other. Yeah, I think in a the official sense, I wasn't aware. I don't think those studies were made public until much more recently. But I think in my heart, you know, growing up, as I said, visiting the trees and being in the trees, you know that, and it's also like us as individuals, we're, we're all connected to each other, to the planet. And I think now that we're living through this pandemic, we've, we're seeing all the systems, how we're connected. Maybe it wasn't so apparent to us before, but now we're seeing how we're reliant in so many different ways on each other and on the planet. And we're all, you know, it's, it's very simple. If you think of the Gaia hypothesis, we're all just one living organism. Um, it's like our microbiomes, right? So all of us individually are made up of more non-human parts than human. And that's how everything is so I've always felt well I'm connected to these trees or they so the fact that they are all connected to each other isn't surprising at all but I think what's strange is in New York you've got this the street tree phenomenon where they're they're not able to have that connection yeah so the street trees is incredibly yeah it's just a special way of thinking about a plant and their death rate is really high not to focus sorry I don't want to focus on negative (laughs) things but it's really, really um, difficult for street trees. So you plant one and the odds are stacked against it, you know, to survive in the city. And part of that is because their, their root system, they, they're working around the infrastructure of the city, all of the pipes and everything that's down there. So I, I think of officially, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware of 
of the um, the wood wide web, as they call it. But it, it makes so much, when I read about it, when it was published in journals and Suzanne Simard's work became public, it, it just seems so obvious to me. I was like, yeah, why are people surprised? Didn't we know that mm-hmm. in a way? It's just the research had never been done and wasn't done. It wasn't taken seriously. I think in the 70s, there was some research that was done that was a bit too hippy dippy, like plants talk. Yeah. So now I think it's, yeah, it's become widespread and it's it's almost taken for granted in a way now what people um appreciate you you said that you're sort of like everywhere where you are you're searching for the green or you need uh, almost physically the green but then your work is almost completely black and white mm-hmm. <laughs> and like I think the the black and white, it's funny because recently I actually bought the only shopping we did before the lockdown happened was we went to the local art store and I bought all these bright colors. I got a set of coloring pencils and bright pens. It's something for the last couple of years I've been trying to do children's picture books and baby books. And so I've been slowly bringing in color. Like with the tree alphabets, I use this bright lime green. So I think that one reason the black and white because I, I maybe part of me has always wanted to be a writer so drawing is is like writing or i'm trying to draw words out or tell stories maybe it all comes down to storytelling and so in a, in in one sense the the black and whiteness is a very obvious way to show that the that's a story but another important part for me was always the news information knowledge is usually transferred in this black and white way and so you might have some graphs or visuals but textbooks, you know, we're so used to, or I'm, maybe it's my own bias of how information is transferred through humans. It's black and white. And also we have these phrases, like in English, we'll say it's, you know, it's black and white. Or you can tell what's good and evil. And now, thank God that this is all being questioned. And black, they're given B for when you're speaking about black people. Now you have a capital B. So we're really questioning what is the language and how we use it and words matter. So the black and whiteness, I think, was just to show that maybe what I'm talking about is, is serious. Because I know my when I'm drawing like trees and flowers, sometimes it can look very, what's the word, light and uh, hobbyist. You know, people sit in their garden and they draw trees. But the issues for me have, have always been deadly serious and really fundamental to the issues that are at stake for the survival of our species so it's very serious and having color might take away might just make it look like this pretty picture and I know because when I was in in college so to go back again to 94 95 and I had to paint because I was in the painting department I always found that the color that you know, I had this huge problem internally with myself why am I making pretty pictures? What has that got to do with anything that is so irrelevant? It's not useful. Uh, there are plenty of people making pretty pictures and you can stick something on your wall and that'll make you feel happy. That's not it. That's never been what I've been interested in at all. For me, it's it's really deadly serious to have conversations and try and understand really what it is I'm doing, what my place is. And I guess maybe I've just always sensed that there's something really, really, really wrong with how things are and to try and delve into that and understand it a bit more. So that that's, I think I've been aware for a long time that this, the black and whiteness of my work was absolutely fundamental to it. And I know it's a problem. I know no, <laughs> if there were no, colours, it would, it would maybe be more, uh, what's the word, approachable. 
No, actually, I think uh, the interesting thing is you said that just that you're really deadly serious and that you knew something is wrong with how things are going or how the world is going. But your drawings, although they are black and white, they are very, very poetic. And I think actually they very early on when I saw the first ones and they have developed i must say but they speak a kind of language from the beginning on when you, you weren't even using the alphabet i had the feeling there is a kind of language in it and it's not negative at all it's not colorful but it's not negative at all on on the contrary i think it's it's very poetic and touching and the interesting thing is also that you said that you started to develop the alphabets, the tree alphabets, down alphabet the pussy alphabet also because actually you started to mistrust language Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was 2015 when I had the, the tree alphabet moment kind of clicked in my head. It was exactly 10 years after I had started doing the first tree drawings. So it's strange how it takes 10 years for something so obvious to make itself obvious <laughs> and apparent. My partner Dylan and I had been hosting what we called Sunday salons. We started in 2014, so in our apartment in New York, we were inviting small groups of people over on Sunday afternoons to talk about art and activism in the Anthropocene. And it started because we'd been having these conversations ourselves over, you know, I like cooking, so we'd have dinners and every single conversation would always come back to the same, some version of art, activism in the Anthropocene. How can we save the planet, basically, our, our species? Things are terribly broken and we need to do something massive. What can we do? And so we, we opened up this question around the dinner table to others and invited people. And the, the Sunday salons became these really vital, special, therapeutic moments almost. So the, the act of getting a group of people together just to talk about the issues, in a sense, and what we're all working on ourselves. And yesterday I was reading um, Joanna Macy's work. I Somehow I have never, I hadn't come across her work before. And she had been, back in the 70s, she was creating small gatherings, what she called despair work. And I realized reading this yesterday, I was like, ah, this is what we were doing with the salons. It was basically a space for us all um, individually and as a little group to talk about the, the dis our despair. The very first salon that we had actually was called How to Die in the Anthropocene. And we had Royce Granton, who had written an op-ed on how to, to die. And so we started at this very dark place. Mm -hmm and went from there and it became a very special very special gathering actually the Sunday salons and I realized in parallel that's what was feeding into the tree alphabet because we kept at almost every session of the, one of the salons we always came back to storytelling and the fact that we need new stories we need to look back at our creation myths and we've forgotten all of these again the fundamentals of what it is to be a human and to be a community and the stories that we used to share and we're, again you know we're just disconnected with this race for progress the myth of progress and the myth of human supremacy so thinking about storytelling and it was this you know again this moment for 2 a.m i realized oh, the trees the tree drawings they are the alphabet that's how i can communicate and and share and it's really a translation project as well because i am able to translate other people's words i found it very difficult to write myself i think all of those conversations really fed into the so again it's you mentioned before about my work including other people that it really couldn't happen without other people it's why i've never found myself being a studio-based artist because I have to be outside in the world feeding off what's happening, what other people are doing, because that's, that's how the world works, right? We're all in this together. Yeah, absolutely. 
um, but you also, and that is, this is part of your practice, this collaboration also with scientists, which I find super interesting. Um, and then you go out to certain spaces. You also did huge projects in public uh, space. You did a New York City tree project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the tree museum mm -hmm. was, we had the 10 year anniversary last year. And that was, um, Back, so 2007, I was invited to to celebrate the Grand Concourse of the, sorry, the centennial of the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. Huge thoroughfare, four and a half mile long. And how do you celebrate 100 years of an enormous street in the Bronx? And I'd only been to the Bronx once to go to a Yankees game. So when I was invited by Jennifer McGregor at Wave Hill, I told her, I said, I don't really know much about the Bronx. So I felt very nervous. They were very interested. They specifically wanted this project to be a green project, to look at the, the nature in the Bronx. And so it's, it really snowballed. So it went from me knowing nothing at all, having all the cliches in my head, you know, the Bronx being this dangerous place, the Bronx is burning. Friends, even, you know, this was 2007, told me to be careful. They were like, you know, it's dangerous up there. You can get mugged or attacked. And I went and fell in love. I loved it. And I was like, this is unbelievable people are like the, all of these stereotypes and how we live having these notions of people and places it's real it really affects how people live and and respond to the world and the day-to-day -day, I was going up to the Bronx every day so the tree museum was um was really a celebration of of this street okay the grand concourse is made up by, i was going to say community but it's made up of many communities and that became the heart of the project i realized through walking the street and meeting i literally knocked on doors and went into schools and after school programs and community gardens and just tried to meet as many people as i could and the stories and the people it was just this huge um warmth and all you know like nothing but positive memories and it really it it created itself. This tree museum project really formed itself. I was more like a facilitator. And so the, the whole project was about celebrating 100 years of this street. And I realized, well, we could use the street trees to tell the stories and the histories through people's voices. So it can combine the people, the humans with the trees along the entire length of the, the Grand Concourse. And this that's what the tree museum was. It, Came this virtual invisible museum that went up four and a half miles of the Grand Concourse and you were able to access the stories through your phone and also through the website so you could dial in so dial a tree and hear the stories and the stories ranged from very specific ones about that particular tree maybe to reaching out to the um, building that was next door to it or the history of trees and the carbon cycle so we had hundreds of people, thousands of people sharing stories. And it was, it really felt like one of those projects where it just literally builds itself. And you're just the person in the middle who, who stitches it all together. It was, it was a massive project. It was exhausting. Doing anything outside in New York City is extremely complicated and time consuming and expensive. And of course, this was on a low budget, but somehow we managed, and it was with the Wavefield the Bronx Museum and the Parks Department. So those three organizations, it was the first time they'd all worked together on a, a public art project. So it was it was really exciting. It was a, a special way for, you know, the Bronx Museum is like any normal museum. They have doors and usually people, the visitors have to enter through 
they open the doors and they go inside and that's the museum is inside so for them they were really excited to think about a museum that's outside for mm -hmm. everybody you might not even realize you're in the tree museum and so it was a way to kind of explode this notion of well, what is a museum what is a tree what are we as citizens out in public space so it was a really fun project and again it was the street trees that were at the heart of it but also the the people so it was combining those two things and now I can easily look back at it and say well it was me trying to give voice to the trees or the trees were giving voice to us so the tree alphabets were seemed like an obvious thing but you know it took five years for the tree museum from the first tree drawings so yeah so art is slow <laughs> it takes time Drawing is a daily practice, and then you go to the residencies, you have these community projects, you're, you're invited for certain things in the public realm, but also you do just sort of like more classical exhibition where you just like show your drawings or show an installation, show, show your work. What is more important to you, like the process, how you get there, or when you see the finalized exhibition? Yeah, it's such a, um, an interesting question and it's really something I'm having to live with right now because the this exhibition just opened at the Visual in Ireland, in Carlo. It's called the Irish Tree Alphabet and so it's a project that's many years in the making. It started around 2017 and I was invited to do a tree project in Dublin and I so that was the seeds of the Irish Tree Alphabet. So well, it's been three three years so Emma, Lucy O'Brien, who's the director at Visual in Carlo, invited me to visit last year and was really excited about bringing the project there. And obviously everything got turned upside down because the coronavirus arrived and we all had to shut down and lock down. And I got stuck here in California, very far away from Carlo in Ireland, um, an eight hour time difference. But Emma was amazing and said, look, the show will go on. We're totally 100% behind um, making it happen. But as you said, my work happens through process and conversation and community. And the whole heart of this project, it is the alphabet, but it was also me being in the community and living in Carlo. And so I was supposed to be there all spring, summer, working with, there's an lo amazing local community garden and so many other people who I haven't met because I'm stuck here. So it was really, really difficult not to be able to, to make the project happen as it normally would as I would normally do it but obviously everything's changed we're all having to work upside down and inside out and respond to the the situation but it, it's made me think about the the work because the exhibition opened so on one hand it's, it's successful it's we did it the Irish tree alphabet is alive you can go and visit it you can see it on the website but it's missing that other element to it and um, I guess I'm still processing what does that mean because the plans are like it's not when usually when I do these shows it's usually not about the exhibition and it's up for a month or six weeks or longer and then that's it usually these these works take time they take time to make but then they happen afterwards and they exist later on and they keep growing and, and going on so in one sense when the show opened that only felt like a date it was like okay now people they can actually go and visit mm -hmm. but the, work itself is still happening there are very practical things like the font for example we're still working on the oem the old medieval irish tree alphabet is being incorporated into the new tree alphabet that i've made and that's very complex so the designers um being incredibly patient and trying to help me figure out how we can make that work but the yeah to try and answer your question about what's more important definitely the, the process because that's what it's all about I think the, the works, the finished works, are all part of the storyline. So, for example, in this exhibition in, 
in visual, you have a series of 26 tree drawings. So there's the A, B, C, D, and they're all, they're framed and they're, they're hanging on the wall. So in one sense, you could think, oh, they're finished drawings. It's a set of 26 for the tree alphabet. But each one of those, they were, they were all made and scanned for four different seasons. And so the idea was that the tree alphabet when we're able to get the technology to catch up with, with what I'm seeing in my mind, the idea is that you'll be able to type in the four seasons. So you can write um, with trees and they'll change and they'll but the trees will be bare winter trees and then they'll bud out and leaf out for spring, summer, autumn and winter again. And so each of the trees that I drew were scanned. So they all kind of live and even though they're, the drawings are framed and on the gallery wall, that's only a part of the story. It's not that they're not, that's not the end of the tree alphabet in any way at all. It's almost like just the beginning. But I saw also something like, which looked to me like a huge wall drawing. That's the letter A, because the space is huge. It's the largest, I think it's the largest gallery space, um, contemporary art space in Ireland. It's really mm -hmm. enormous because the font, the typeface exists usually on your computer screen. So it's quite small scale. Um, and the idea is you can type, so you type A, B, C, and instead of the letter A, B and C popping up, you have the tree A, which is I'm Scott's Pine, and B is Birch. And with the font, you know, it's a vector file, so that means that you can make it any size you want, and it'll always look exactly the same. So I thought, oh, if all of the ABC, because I, I kept thinking back to the classroom, um, you know, when you're small and you're in your classroom, they have the ABC. Well, maybe they, not in your classroom, but in my classroom, they had the ABCs and the seasons running around the top of the, the wall. And it just seemed very obvious to me that we would have the ABC of the Irish tree alphabet running around through the gallery and the A being the first letter and the Scots pine just happened to fit very nicely on the wall over the entranceway, the doorway. Um, so it's just a vinyl. So it's a wall drawing that I didn't make myself. So you can understand, you can feel my pain. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. That's why this is why I was referring to that because I saw you so many times doing everything yourself. Yeah, everything. <laughs> my hands usually. So that's why it's it's very it's very strange, and I am still processing all of it that I'm not there. And they've been, you know, they were incredibly patient because we had to do it all through Zoom and emails. And you know what it's like trying to edit anything. It's really difficult. And I always spend time, when I worked on the my book about trees, I'm, I moved to Berlin and I was there for a few months so that I could literally sit side by side with the designers, with them at the computer, because it's just the only way, it's the easiest way to go through the, the edits. And to have to do all of those edits through emails and back and forth it's so time consuming and on the the time difference so i've basically been on irish time for i don't know the last month so i'm completely exhausted <laughs> yeah that's the large tree um drawing is basically a vinyl oh, and i've okay. never yeah i've never used vinyl before but way back like last year when we start when i visited visual and the plans were coming together for what the show would be and i thought i'd be living in carlo and working with um the local groundskeepers and gardeners and we were going to get some dead trees because like everywhere else the trees are dying through old age but also pests beetles invasives and that's a huge part of this project of mine with the tree alphabets is we have trees that are dying off and then we have new ones that are moving in so when i worked on the new york city tree alphabet with the parks department this was a, a very important very important part of the whole project. It was an easy way for the Parks Department to speak to the public about climate change, about the mm -hmm. fact that native doesn't necessarily mean the same things anymore because 
the, they've actually officially had to change the climactic planting zone that New York City is in. So what we think of as natives is changing and it's the, this parallels what's happening with humans as we move and where people are being forced to move. It's the same with trees. So I had planned on living, being in Carlo, and I was going to harvest, this was, I had been looking forward to harvesting materials from trees and plants that I could make my own colours. Because as I said, I've been trying to include colour. So when I was in Leitrim last year on a residency, I actually started very simply making a set of, of homemade dyes. And I had been looking forward to doing something in, in Carlo, maybe wall paintings, having huge canvases you know because the space is enormous to share these new dyes and obviously I haven't been able to do any of that um, and vinyl is again plastic and it's made from oil and it's awful and it's got a terrible carbon footprint but um, desperate times I'm just really this is another thing like how do you talk about having a sustainable art practice the systems have got to change hopefully we're moving through this is a transition that's going to have a happy ending we talk about storytelling we're all living through this this story and we it's at the moment it's a horror story but we can only hope and fight to make it have a happy ending we're seeing some news like good news today's paper had positive stories about people who've been elected to congress it's Mm -hmm. super exciting the potential is enormous and people have been fighting for years you know it's been four years and just got to keep fighting and hope that truth wins out. I've, this is what's very disturbing to me because I'm a simple person. I've always thought that the right things, the, the truth and justice, and you know, I've always believed in all of that, that wins out at the end of the day. And to live through these years and what we've been seeing is just very, very disturbing to your whole sense of, of world order and, and even the species, like what are we? The goodness, there are more good people out there, I know. <laughs> yeah, um, this is also, that that leads to the last question I want to uh, pose, which is you're part of something which is called The Resistance, which is also up on your website. Um, can you tell me something about that? This was very much going back to the election in 2016. Um, so even before the election happened, the American presidential election, I was out in the streets campaigning because I don't think people really realized that this was happening and that it was happening and it shouldn't be happening we shouldn't have people like this running you know allowed to run for president completely unqualified sick in many different ways very very disturbing so the last four years have been really traumatic but from the very beginning like even before November 8th 2016 people were mobilized and were in the streets and were fighting again it comes back to storytelling trying to share the story their own personal stories how this was damaging themselves their own communities and and everyone else everybody was under attack is under attack so I I was part of that you know they called it the resistance and as I said it's hopefully now that we're seeing some really positive manifestations of it coming to pass where great people are moving into congress and we're going to see change Mm -hmm. because we need massive like you know they've talked about we have 10 years left to deal with the climate emergency we don't even have 10 years and we're looking at best case scenario now is what was the worst case scenario just recently. So the tipping points have been reached. We have cis biological systems on the planet that are now out of control. So what's happening within our human political system is, has happened to the, because we are all one system. 
it's happening on all these different levels. And it's just terrifying to see, you know, we've got the coronavirus, which is attacking us, but then you've got the the storm Isaiah just it just did its thing on the east coast. And then over here outside LA, we have the wildfire. And so just living with this constant, constant shadow, it's it's terrifying. I think it's the uh, traumatic because ex- it has been traumatic the last four years, you know, and now you just have, you know, 155,000 people dead, most of them for no other reason other than this administration literally just wants us all to die. And it's it's really, really disturbing and feeling very powerless. But we just have to keep going and try and um, bring out the best in all of us. Don't you think you, you do something like this by just keep on drawing just making your art keep on connecting to the people well yeah you have to hope that it's making a message that's i guess one reason that i use social media i feel like it's a, a way to share information it makes you feel good when you get responses and people respond and tell you that it's it's helped them and it's making their life better so that feels good but you're thinking well on what scale you know we really need to change everything so is me, is me sitting here making a few drawings? That's not, and that was the reason we started the Sunday salons because we felt so powerless. Um, actually, our last Sunday salon was with Mary Hegler, who's a writer from Mississippi, but she's now in New York, and she was really wonderful. Um, Mary's writes, but she's also got a podcast, and she's she just said this simple advice to all of us she just said look you just have to do what you're good at everybody's trying to figure out what can I do to change the world we have to do something you just figure out what are you good at and do it and I guess in a way that's we had figured that out and that's what we were all doing but there are different levels of that right so you're drawing but what is the scale I think maybe it's a question of scaling things up like how like is the message really getting out there how do you communicate and What's the community? Are we all just, is my community talking to itself? I have been doing a lot of projects with Emergence magazine. They've been incredible the last few years. And when the pandemic hit, they set up a special Emergence online community and they offered reading groups and shared people's words. Really um, powerful community. But again, I, I keep thinking, but are we just the same people who think the same things, feeling good because we're meeting other people who are sharing the same how do we burst through this and somehow communicate to the whole species so you're constantly feeling like the work that you're doing is inadequate (laughs) because I do talk to scientists and and work with scientists so for all these decades having known so it's it's all it's very inevitable it's so obvious and that's what's really painful because you could very easily see the outcome but we keep you know again I keep coming back to the happy ending and that's why I would love to spend you know to sit down now that the show has opened and maybe start working on some of these fairy tales that's why I've you know been talking about the kids books that if I could just come up with some of these my own little fairy tales that I could share. I think it's what you just said about storytelling that we just need another way to and and other stories to tell more positive stories more engaging more stories that connect and i think actually yeah this is something which we can start at this very moment thinking beyond the human that's a big part of it as well that realizing that we are just one animal on this planet connected to all the others and that's where the tree alphabets came in it was got to move beyond this human centric language because we we communicate to each other but 
there was all this other communication out there that we're not sensing or we're not slowing down to pay attention. And I think you know, some people have, have been able to, obviously it's traumatic living through the lockdowns, but it's given some people time to, to notice small things. You know, people have been talking about how they've noticed snails mm-hmm. or birds, simple things. They're like, I, all these years, I didn't realize the storytelling including the, the non-humans. I think this is what's really, like, how, do, are there any novels, are there any books that have a, a protagonist who's not, I know Richard Powers had his very special book, The Overstory, where he included the trees. So we need more of this, where it's not the, the human that's the center of the story. And so that's what I've, I'm trying to, to think about. And, I, and one reason I think kids' books, children's books are really beautiful and powerful because that's something that they include. You know, you've got this community of, you'll have little apples and, and worms. You know, I'm trying to think of all of the kids' books, the Good Night Moon. Um, so we need to go back to this. And obviously, indigenous communities and cultures. I have Natalie Diaz's new book, The Postcolonial Love Poem. Mm-hmm. So to go back to communities of people who, who've always been very attuned to all of this but have not been listened right they've been attacked in so many ways and also yeah braiding sweetgrass robin mall kimmerer's book has really exploded it was published almost five years ago i think and suddenly the last year or two people have have discovered her words and i think robin's really creating a space for people to think and connect thinking about kin and kindness thank you so much katie Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Fan Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect.